Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm very excited to get to the book of Philippians this morning in our Walk Through the Bible series. It's a great book to start a new year on because it's all about joy and progress in the faith. It's a great uh, great way to begin our resolve for the new year. What are the things that we should be resolved to do at the start of a new year? I think for many of us, when we think about the, the start of a new year, particularly if we find ourselves more towards the middle of life, we have fitness goals as we, as we start a new year. I need to lose a few pounds, get in a little bit better shape. Um, I was talking to my brother-in-law who was visiting over the Christmas break about fitness watches. And so we were looking at, at fitness watches and um, my wife and I will, will talk about, okay, what's your battery, 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 body battery at right now? Or um, when you're running, how many kilometers have you run this week? What's your pace at? What's your VO2 max? All these kinds of things. But as we think about progress uh, athletically or, or uh, health-wise, fitness, it's not the same as progress in the faith. Now, of course, as the Bible itself will say, physical, uh, physical work, uh, training is of some value, right? But godliness is of value in all ways. But personal progress is not like a fitness watch when it comes to the faith. It's not something we do individually. It's something we do together as a team. Progress in the faith, in other words, is not merely something that's individual. It's a corporate progress. It's a progress that we make together. And it's essential that we do that as a team in unity. So yes, Gospel progress is personal. We are each called to repent, to believe, to be sanctified. But it's something that in God's purpose is only accomplished together corporately as the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, we need each other and the work happens together. And the greatest enemy to that progress is division. The greatest enemy to our progress in the faith, to the advance of the gospel, is division, disharmony, quarreling, strife, selfishness. So as we turn to this new year, may we be resolved to be united together for our progress and joy in the faith. And that's what the book of Philippians is all about. Paul writes and Paul serves for our progress and joy in the faith. Not a kind of progress that is miserable and that we gripe and grumble about, where we just kind of are moved around, but a kind of progress that is filled with joy. That as we progress in the faith together, our joy increases. Our hope our peace increases. And that's why Paul gives us this letter. In God's good grace, while Paul is sitting in prison for the faith, he chooses to write about joy and unity and the advance of the gospel in our lives and in this world. 
If you turn to page four of your worship folder, real briefly, let me just walk you through the outline of this book. And our sermon this morning will follow closely along with this outline. But we see Philippians broken into four main sections. First, where Paul shows that the progress of the gospel is a team effort. Secondly, he will command us as the church to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Thirdly, in the main section of the book, he's going to address threats to a united gospel ministry. And then fourthly, he will conclude by showing the way of peace. So if we want to experience the peace of God in 2024, we couldn't do any better than learning from Paul in his letter to the Philippians. What is the way of peace, the way of unity, the way where we will make true and real and lasting progress in the gospel together? So let's dive in to this letter. The f- we'll see four things this morning. First, we will see that gospel progress is a team effort. Gospel progress is a team effort. And in this opening section of the letter, we see this in two ways. Firstly, we see that Paul needs the Philippians. Paul needs the Philippians. Paul begins his thanksgiving in chapter 1, verse 3 by saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because, and this is key, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the context of this letter, Paul is sitting in prison because of his preaching of the gospel. But what is Paul joyful about? It's that churches like Philippi are partnered with him for the advance of the gospel. Towards the end of this letter, he's going to thank them for the contributions that they made to sustain him in his imprisonment. Not only giving financial contributions to Paul, but also praying fervently for him. If you look down at verse 19, Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Earlier in in, uh, verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so what Paul is saying here at the beginning is that it is Philippi's partnership with Paul that allows the gospel to be advanced. It's Philippi's partnership with Paul that allows his ministry to be sustained, his very life. He's dependent on others, bringing him food, 
bringing him what he needs in his imprisonment. Roman prisons are not like Norwegian prisons where everything is taken care of for you. If you were in prison, you still depended on those outside to give you what you needed to sustain you. And the Philippians have come to the aid of Paul, praying for him, providing what he needs so that he can continue to advance the gospel, even in his imprisonment. Both in verse 5 and verse 7, where Paul speaks of partnership, this is the language of koinonia, the Greek word koinonia, the fellowship. Paul is rejoicing that the faith is being advanced through their fellowship with one another. As the body of Christ, they are one. They are in fellowship with Paul's imprisonment. They are in fellowship with his defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so Paul rejoices then in verse 6 with them. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Gospel progress is a team effort. Paul needs the church. But we also see in this opening section that the church needs Paul. The church needs Paul. Look at uh, chapter 1, verses 24 to 26. In this section, Paul is, is wrestling with whether it would be better to be with Christ, to die and go and be with the Lord, or to remain in this world of suffering for the gospel. And in verse 24, Paul concludes, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This verse 25 is a key to the whole book of Philippians. Paul is committed, though it would be far better to depart and be with the Lord. He is committed to the church. He's committed to the Philippians. He's committed to the Christians that will be saved through his gospel ministry. He's committed to the Christians that will be built up in the faith and preserved for the day of Christ through his gospel ministry. And therefore he is resolved in verse 25 to remain for their progress and joy in the faith. Brothers and sisters, that's why we ought to be here. That's why we ought to show up on the Lord's Day together. That we with Paul could say that I am here. We are here for your progress and joy in the faith. Look around at those sitting next to you. You should be here for their progress and joy in the faith. Progress in the gospel, it's not a solo affair. It's not one person running alone. It's a team effort. And that's why we have the church. That's why we come together to use our gifts to build up one another. 
It's that we might progress in the faith, that we might increase in joy together. Gospel progress is a team effort. Paul will come back to this theme again towards the end of chapter 4. Let's now turn to the second thing that Paul teaches us in this letter. Number two, we must strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We must strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we'll see this in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. As Paul has just shown us that gospel progress is a team effort, he also now shows us that this is the main thing in our life. This is the main thing in our life. As much as we would love to do many things in this world, and I'm sure we all have our bucket lists of things we would like to do before we die, the main thing the main purpose that we are still here is that we would strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel, that our faith would be rooted in Jesus Christ together in the one who began the good work and who will be faithful to complete it. And Paul uses the imagery of an athlete and of a team event. You can imagine in, in Rome, what was the, the greatest athletic competitions were the gladiatorial battles in the arena, in the Colosseum in Rome. Many of God's people suffered martyrdom in that Colosseum. But the image that Paul draws on is he himself is in prison is that of combat striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The Roman army was feared in the ancient Near Eastern world. And their battle techniques were state of the art. There is something called the Roman phalanx where they would stand they would have these giant shields and that they would link in together like this with their spears pointing out, but they'll be locked in. They were like a, a turtle. They were impenetrable. They were impenetrable. And what allowed the Roman armies to conquer so many lands was their fierce devotion to their military tactics and technique. They fought as one man. And Paul is drawing on this kind of imagery in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul uses a Greek word, soon 
Athleto, so the word we use for athletic in the English language, and soon is the word for together. So together, compete. And it is the image of striving together in a competition, in a battle to win. And what Paul says that the church must be for the progress and joy of the faith is to be united together. Look at the language of unity in verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If we are to make progress in our joy and in our faith, We have to do it with arms and shields linked together, moving forward together into the field of battle. Because if we do it on our own, we will be slaughtered. There is no concept in the Bible of lone wolf Christianity or lone soldier Christianity. We are not modernists. Right? Who's the hero in modern films and novels? It's the maverick. It's the rogue hero. right? The one person that stands up. But that is not biblical Christianity. If we are going to win in the battle for the faith, we can only do that locked arm in arm together. Shields coming together One spirit, one mind. But why? Why does it have to be that way? Why do we need to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel? Paul gives us the reason in the verses that follow. Look at verses 29, well, 28 to 30. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that and that from God. 4, verse 29. It has been granted you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Are you conflict avoidant? Now, depending on the circumstance, it's not always a bad thing to not be one to be eager for conflict. But I saw a few heads nodding. To be united to Christ and to his church means you are engaging in conflict. Because we are living in a world that is at enmity with God and his people. The old theologians called the church on earth the church militant. The church engaged in battle. And we don't know the full context uh, from Philippians. We can get some clues of what may be going on here. But it seems that at least some of the Philippians are out of a sake of avoiding conflict, are bringing jeopardy to their progress in the faith. 
Paul reminds them in verse 28, don't be frightened by anything. Paul encourages them in the verses preceding this section about his own imprisonment, that this is for the advance of the gospel. And he reminds them, the good news of the gospel is not only that God appointed you to believe. Look, look at what he says. For it has been clear, for it has been granted to you, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. So there are two things granted to us in the Christian life, as we see here in verse 29. For it has been granted to you, for Christ's sake, to believe. That's a gift. But it's also been granted to you, as the church, to suffer for his sake. And that there's no progress in the faith, and there's no unity as a church that we can experience if half of us are ready and half of us want to avoid any kind of conflict or drama. To make progress in the faith and to advance the gospel, we must be ready to suffer. And then verse 30, engaged in the same conflict, as Paul says, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I've been mentioning uh, the last several weeks about my uh, trip through the Apostolic Fathers. And it's striking to me, you read, uh, you read some of the church fathers like uh, Ignatius or Polycarp. They are ready to go to their deaths. They are both imprisoned and on the way to be executed and they are writing to the churches. And indeed, they even write to Philippi. One of the early church fathers, Polycarp, writes to Philippi. The very letter, the very church that Paul started. Saying, pray for me. Pray for me. That I might be worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. And that's the attitude of the early church Christians that ended up overturning the empire. As pagans in the crowds who came to watch the slaughter of Christians were converted by their temperance and their gentleness and their stoicism and their joy to suffer and to die for Christ's sake. What an advance the gospel made in triumph over the Roman Empire by Christians, by men and women and even children who went to the beasts and the gladiators and to the fiery stake with joy to be counted worthy to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how the gospel advances. We're still here, Paul says, only 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that Paul had and was still undergoing. If we want to make progress as a church in the faith this year, we must be ready to suffer and to stand side by side, encouraging one another in our own afflictions and sufferings, building one another up in the faith with one spirit and one mind. Let's turn to the third thing then that Paul shows us in Philippians. The third thing he shows us is he says to beware of threats to a united gospel ministry. We must beware of threats to a united gospel ministry. And we're going to move over these in brief. You have the outline in your worship folder for your own study. But there's going to be a threat that Paul addresses and then an antidote, a way to overcome that threat. And we're going to look at four here this morning in brief. The first threat to a united gospel ministry, to a united gospel team, a united gospel army, the first threat to that is selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit, or put another way, inordinate self-esteem and arrogance. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, that's our word fellowship again, in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So see how this theme of unity is moving forward after he's just told us to strive side by side, fight side by side, one mind, one spirit. Now he says, complete my joy, having the same mind, the same love, in full accord, one mind, Therefore, he says, don't do the absolute opposite of what I just told you, which is selfish ambition and vain conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul begins with the very opposite of unity, which is selfish personal ambition and vain conceit. Arrogance. It's a sad reality in the church today how many people come to church for selfish reasons. I have led worship in uh, very large churches and seen people like this because they don't like the music. I've seen families break up. We have seen churches split 
because they don't like how one thing or another is done. They're not bothered by doctrinal reasons, but because their personal needs and wants and desires are not being met. And I believe it's one of the devil's greatest tactics, right? It goes all the way back to the garden. He fostered Adam and Eve's desire to be like God, maybe even to be better, to be independent. And that spirit of independence, of inordinate self-esteem, of arrogance, of ambition, destroys the unity of the church. Destroys. If we come as cowboys, we're not going to go out together and make progress in the gospel. And so what's the antidote to that then? Well, in one of the most famous passages of the New Testament, Paul points them to Christ's example of humility. You think you're something? Well, then look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? Though he was equal with God, as the Son of God, it's the second person of the Trinity. He's equal with God. One God, three persons, equal in power and glory. And yet in his role as Messiah and as Redeemer, what form did he take? Did he come with his entourage, with all glory and power and people flocking to him? Did he come boasting? Did he come in his sports car, his sports chariot? I don't know what it would have been in the first century. Did he come to build a giant mansion? Did he come to accumulate things on earth? No. Paul tells us, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who owned everything, the one who was the only one deserving of true glory. The only one that could glory in himself without sin. Because he's God. The one who owns everything in the universe. Because he sustains it by the word of his power. Is the one who for the sake of the gospel. To advance the gospel took the form of a servant and became obedient even to death on a cross. The master became the slave for the sake of your salvation and mine to advance the gospel. In humility, he counted others as more significant than himself that you and me might be saved. 
And that's the attitude that we must have if we are to advance the gospel as a united front. That we come here on Sunday not only for our own interests, for our own progress in the faith, but counting others as better than ourselves and coming for their progress in the faith as well. And what a beautiful opportunity that is. We look around, many, some of us have been here for a while, others are brand new. But we're united in Jesus. We're united in Jesus. We are a family in Jesus. And God has appointed such times as this that we could be together for the advance of the gospel and for our progress and our joy in the faith of Jesus Christ. So let's not let selfish ambition or conceit threaten that. Another gospel threat, another threat to a united gospel front we see is disingenuous and self-interested workers. Chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. Paul is going to be sending a couple brothers to Philippi, both Timothy and Epaphroditus. So two co-workers of Paul's who are helping to encourage and build up the churches in the faith. And he says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul is embattled with people that are pretending to be ministers of the gospel. We saw in 2 Corinthians, he called these people super apostles. They, were, they looked like they had great ministries. They were boasting in their great ministries, but they were actually workers of deceit. They were selfish, working for their own gain and their own glory. And ministers like that are tremendous threats to the gospel. Ministers or co-workers or workers of the faith that are disingenuous and self-interested leave when the going gets rough. They abandon the church. They create division in the church. Because their belly is their end goal. But that is not Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what's the, what's the antidote here? Verse 29. Receive these brothers. He's talking about Timothy and then Epaphroditus. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Talking about Epaphroditus, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Both Timothy and Epaphroditus were fellow workers and fellow soldiers with Paul and with the church. Look, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Here's this competition, conflict language again. And your messenger and minister to my need. 
He persevered through illness almost to death for the sake of the Philippians. He's probably the one that brought financial aid to Paul that we'll see later in the book. And he said, honor these guys that are laying their life down for your progress, for your joy, for the advance of the gospel. Whether they be ministers or, or volunteers or lay leaders, if we're to be a united gospel front, we must lay our lives down for the gospel and for each other. A third threat to a united gospel ministry is confidence in the flesh. We see this in chapter three, one to verse, chapter four, verse one. Paul says in chapter three, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is battling Judaizers. Some of these Judaizers were false teachers who were saying that to really be Christian, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised and follow the food laws and follow the Mosaic covenant. And we saw how Paul uh, showed us in Galatians how God put an end to that in Jesus, that the law of Moses, or the, the, the Mosaic covenant with the food laws and the, the sacrificial system with circumcision was brought to an end in Jesus. But there are some that are going forward and saying, you need to have all this stuff if you're truly to be saved. And then there are also Judaizers who were Jews seeking to just make Christians apostatize and fall away from the faith and come back to Judaism. In both ways, Paul is calling them dogs. This is one of these times where Paul uses really strong language against some bitter opponents Dogs in the Jewish world were the Gentiles. The Gentiles who were unworthy at the table. The Gentiles who were unredeemable. Paul is saying those that are truly unredeemable are those that put confidence in the flesh. Because as we've seen elsewhere, by works of the law shall no one be saved. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The true circumcision was not cutting off flesh. The true circumcision was the regeneration that comes by the Holy Spirit being born again by the Spirit who indwells in us. That's what circumcision pointed to. The church of Jesus Christ is marked not by something that's visible, but something that's invisible by the indwelling spirit and the people of God, which comes to us by faith. Amen. Comes to us by faith. But then Paul plays with them. If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. So the antidote to this is going to be Paul saying, follow my example. 
follow my example. If anyone has confidence, I am more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This word rubbish is the word for dung. I count it all as refuse. You know, so like Paul goes into his house, as it were, and he's got all these trophies and badges of his greatness. And he's taking all of that and throwing it into the waste bin. This is all rubbish. Because I will not gain Christ by any of this. Knowing Christ, the prayer for this year. You don't need to have anything to know Jesus. You you don't need to have anything to boast about to know Jesus. In fact, anything you boast about will only become a hindrance. May the things you boast in be as foul and odious as a public lavatory in a football field. May it stink to you May you desire to remove every boast as far as you can so that you can breathe the fresh air of Jesus Christ. Because Paul's desire is to suffer the loss of all things, to count them as waste in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And Paul goes on to say he, he's not obtained this yet, but he presses on. Forgetting what's behind, straining to what's ahead, he presses on, verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then this is his exhortation to you and me. You want to be mature? Do you want to be mature? Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So here Paul is saying the antidote to boasting in the flesh, the thing that destroys unity, is to imitate those who have gone before us. He says, look at me. He's already pointed us to Jesus, the great example. And then he says, follow me. Not only that, he also says, look around 
Verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Again, as we've seen that the progress in the gospel is a team effort, we need the examples of others as well. We learn from one another. We learn from the examples of church history as well. That's why it's such a wonderful thing to to read and study church history, those that have gone before us. It's a great thing to read literature from other generations and centuries. Because when we're... When you're on the boat, you don't know how far off course you may be until you have some kind of rule or measure to locate your position by. You can triangulate your position by looking at others in the faith, not just in the present, but also in the past. So one final threat to United Gospel Ministry that Paul addresses here, and that's quarreling church members quarreling church members. And Paul must have been grieved because two people that have contended for the faith with them, with him, are now quarreling and fighting amongst themselves. Two women here. Chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. One thing is sure in the gospel ministry, conflict will arise. Conflict will arise. Paul told the church in Rome as far as it is dependent on you, live at peace with all. We're not always going to achieve perfect peace and unity here on earth, but we should strive for it. And here, Paul is writing and entreating two women who have, and this word labored in the ESV is that same word, strive side by side that we saw before. It's the same Greek word, soon athleo, contend together. These two women who have contended together with Paul are now in some kind of disagreement. And we don't know the full context of their disagreement, but he is entreating them to agree in the Lord to find unity in Jesus. To come back into unity with Paul and the others who are laboring side by side for the gospel. So here we've seen four threats to this united gospel front that we're called to have, this united gospel ministry, selfish ambition and conceit, disingenuous and self-interested workers, confidence in the flesh, and quarreling church members. I pray that we would know none of this in 2024, and that we would strive in every way that we can, as far as, as it is up to us, to be united in the gospel together. Finally then, the fourth thing that we see from Paul in this letter is the way of peace. The way of peace, chapter 4, verse 4 to the end. Paul has shown us that gospel progress is a team effort. 
He's shown us that we must strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. He has shown us four threats to unity as a gospel team. And now fourthly, he shows us then, what is the way of peace? Peace is another way of talking about unity. Well, let's see what he has for us. Just point out a few things in brief as we conclude this message. He shows us that the way of peace is a number of attitudes that we have. For example, in chapter 4, verse 4, it is joy. It's an attitude of joy. The way of peace is the way of joy. He says in verse 4 of chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, Paul is one to talk because he's sitting in a dank Roman prison. He might be fed to the beasts. And even that, he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Early in the letter, he was rejoicing in his imprisonment and sufferings because it was advancing the gospel. Now, what's our typical response to pain? Not that. It's grumbling, groaning, bitterness. I have seen people who have made shipwreck of their faith because they have let the root of bitterness anchor in them and will not pull it out. Like a porcupine quill that keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper till it kills you if you don't remove it. Paul grieves here about some who have made shipwreck of their faith. Brothers and sisters, we cannot let bitterness destroy our faith. Do you know that ultimately, bitterness is not something that you harbor against another person? or against a a random thing that has happened to you, but it's ultimately against God. Because it is God who is appointed, who is granted for you not only to believe, but also to suffer. We've already seen that it's God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In 1 Peter, we're not there yet, but we did a series in 1 Peter Paul exhorts, or Peter exhorts them, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. So mature Christians, past, present, understand that even the afflictions we face are according to God's will and for the purpose of advancing the gospel. And that's why Paul can say, rejoice in the Lord always. Always. There aren't any exceptions to always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. So that if you are suffering affliction, ask that the Lord 
would bear gospel fruit through it. We can, of course, pray for deliverance. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians how he prayed for deliverance from the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. But God left it there. God left it there for Paul. But he also told him that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Remember again how the Roman Empire was overturned because of joyful Christians going to their slaughter and rejoicing that they could be counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. That's the power that advances the gospel. So rejoice always. That's the way of peace in your heart. Give over bitterness to God. Trust in him and find joy. Uh, Verse 5, we see that gentleness, reasonableness is the way of peace. Verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This word reasonable can also be translated as gentle or gentleness. It's really hard to be united, or sorry, it's very hard to be divided when people serving together are gentle with each other. When they act reasonably. It is unreasonableness, it is harshness that creates division in the church. So he says, let your reasonableness, your gentleness be known to everyone. That is the way of peace. A third way of peace is prayer. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the promise of these things we've seen then, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We were able to pray for each other this morning. Job concerns, job needs, family issues, desires to know the Lord, and many other things. When we pray for each other, we experience peace. You know, when you know there's people that love you, that they, they know what you're suffering and they know your afflictions or hardships, anxiety flies out the window. It's when we harbor things to ourselves that our hearts get filled with anxiety and turmoil, where our joy is stolen from us. When we live in transparency with others in a loving gospel community, There's peace, there's freedom, there's joy. The greatest medication you could ever receive for depression and anxiety is gospel community filled with prayer and love. Finally, the way of peace, Paul shows us, is to follow his example. He says in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, 
and the God of peace will be with you. So again, two promises to the God of peace being with us. And it's through joy, gentleness, prayer, and following the examples of people like Paul. I would really encourage you to have heroes in the faith. Understanding that every hero is flawed and not perfect. And Christ is our supreme example. But it's remarkable how often in the New Testament we're pointed to the examples of others to follow them. I would encourage you to find someone. If you need some help finding someone, it's great to read authors, some old, old dead men or women that were heroes of the faith and learn from their example. Brothers, we've seen that progress in the gospel is not like a personal fitness watch, right? You can't like turn your watch, how's my sanctification today, right? What's my spiritual temperature? You know, how, how many spiritual, like, how much spiritual progress did I make last week? You know, it's not like a personal fitness watch, but I will say it is, it is, Kind of like it in one way. You know, when, when my wife and I get up in the morning, it's like we, we joke because our watches say the same thing. Like, what's your body battery at? What was your sleep score last night? You know, things, things like this. But there's an encouragement in, in working as a team where people are encouraging you, holding you accountable, checking in on you. But it's so much more important that we do it, not for our physical fitness, but our spiritual development in the church, that we have people It's like, Peter, how's your heart, brother? How can I pray for you? You know, Sigvo, what's going on in your life? How can I encourage you this week? And not just minister to the congregation, but as we eat together, as we, as we communicate with each other during the week, that you're thinking of others. Let them know that you're thinking about them and ask how you can pray and encourage them. You're not going to ask them what their body battery level is, but how's your, how's your heart? How can I pray for you? What, what are your concerns right now? What do you need? And I, and I tell you, as I think, as the, as the minister of this church, as I think about 2024, as I pray for our progress in joining the faith, one of my prayers is that each of you would grow in doing this without being asked. That it would become your default habit. So you wouldn't need me or an elder or someone in the church to remind you, but that you would just do it. And that our congregation would be known for that, for seeking one another out. Because ultimately, a church is not going to grow simply if you've got a minister who's preaching faithfully. That's a key way the church grows. But we have to apply what's being taught. Right? And I can, there's a, there's a saying, I can teach it to you, but I can't understand it for you. Right? I can teach it to you, I can't apply it for you. You now need to take these words of the gospel and bear fruit. And so that's my prayer for us as a congregation, that you will, I, I pray that you can pray for me that I will remain faithful. But my prayer for you is that you will take these things now and grow and run with them 
for the advancement of the gospel in our church and ministry, for the advance of the gospel in this community and country that the Lord has placed us in. So my prayer is that you would follow Paul and imitate others like him and run, that we would run together, encouraging one another, striving even in the conflict of the gospel side by side, that we would fight against these threats to unity with the antidotes that Paul has given us here, looking to Jesus, looking to Paul, considering other needs greater than ourselves, with the hope and the peace that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ. So may we as the church of Jesus Christ bear much fruit in advancing the progress and joy of one another's faith, in 2024, may we be like our Lord Jesus, and may the day of Jesus be that which propels us forward as we, as a united front, seek to serve him in a world of hostility. Let's pray.